Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm the magical Molly. (laughs) Molly, I really hope that you don't mind me sharing this with our listeners, but... uh, Ladies and gents, this might have been Molly's favorite podcast research. You might have seen on your iTunes queue, Women in Magic. What are these girls talking about? (laughs) Well, folks, (laughs) Molly gunned hard for this. And Molly, I think, might be secretly pursuing some kind of career in magic. Magic and illusions. Yeah, because she, she sent me a list of articles and said, we have to do this. Well, Kristen mentioned magic offhand one day, and it suddenly struck me I've never seen a female magician. Yeah. And I said something like, I've never seen a female magician, and Kristen dismissed me. But never dismiss me, folks. <laughs> because like a rabbit, I will reappear out of your hat to remind you of gender differences, which is what I did. I went Which back is and- why I never wear a hat to work. Because <laughs> I'm always trying to pull things out of it. Um... So anyway, once once Kristen dismissed my magic idea, I turned to the magical internet, if you will, and found a great article by Peter Nardi that was uh, called Why Have Women Magicians Vanished? Which confirmed all my beliefs that this was a, a totally uh, gender-segregated profession. And granted, it's not the most popular profession. No. I mean, it's, it's not like this is a, a gender problem we need to solve because it affects so many women. <laughs> like, you know... Wall Street, let's say. But it's a problem nonetheless, because what we're going to get into, and this might be what Kristen is laughing at me about, is that when you look at these tricks, they are so loaded with gender implications that I'm just amazed we made it this far, almost uh, more than two years now, Kristen, without getting to the topic of women and magic. (laughs) Molly's going to start protesting magic shows, (laughs) children's birthday parties. (laughs) The magicians. It's going to be great. Well, and you know, once you start trying to find female magicians, it's very hard to find that find some that don't perform in bikinis, which is a whole nother topic. And make their clothes disappear. They only make their clothes disappear. Like, yeah, a self-respecting male magician wouldn't make his clothes disappear. They wear tuxedos. It's yeah. it's um, it's very it's oh, it's so loaded. I can't wait to start talking about. It. Let's start talking about. Let's it, start Kristen. talking about it. Now we have to clarify that. This is stage magic. This is stuff like card tricks, right. um, sleight of hand, uh, disappearing acts, things Illusions. like that. Illusions. Illusions. Think of Joe Bluth from Arrested Development. Yes. Um, and My favorite mis- magician. Probably mine, too, for all his problems in executing tricks. Um, because when you are searching for women in magic, it's important to make that distinction, Kristen, because when you're searching for women in magic, it's easy to find uh, people like tarot card readers, mm-hmm. psychics. I mean, there's magic is a broad definition, uh, but we are talking about stage magic. And, uh, you know, making that distinction, it was very important in the early days of magic becoming entertainment because, uh, and I think this will get into one of the reasons why women might have been wary to join the uh, fields of this profession was because at the time they were burning witches. They were burning witches. Yeah, um, obviously magic, the dark magic, the occultish magic, if you will, was associated largely with old women. And we had, we did a podcast a long time ago about women and witchcraft. And a lot of times these were just 
single, older, unmarried, childless women who were demonized in their villages whenever some kind of illness would or some kind of natural disaster would befall the people. So when when people start becoming interested in things like juggling and making, you know, a ball disappear under a cup, people didn't automatically think, oh, this is entertainment. They thought it was the same sort of dark magic. And these people, you know, were 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 dangerous. And so in 1584, we have kind of a big turning point because uh, uh, Reginald Scott published a book called Discovery of Witchcraft. And this was a book that made the argument that uh, magicians weren't witches, basically by exposing how a lot of tricks were done. But, you know, just making the point that if a, if someone knows how to juggle, it's because they know how to throw things in the air, not that they are working in conjunction with the devil to levitate objects. And this makes sense because uh, right around this time in the 16th century, we have this backlash of... Well, I guess intellectual backlash, if you will, of rational skepticism against all of these kind of, um, I guess, church-driven, hyper-religious overtones that were sending, you know, women to the stake for witchcraft when they, in fact, weren't doing anything at all. And so Scott was trying to point out, like you said, that, hey, these jugglers are just doing these fancy little tricks. They're not summoning up demons to hold the balls in the air for them or something like that. And he actually breaks down some of these magic tricks that are not unlike the illusions that one might see today. And you would think that centuries later, this connection between witchcraft and magic would be done. You know, that was a long time ago, but it's still brought up, you know, even in this 2010 article by Nardi is this, you know, sort of uh specter, I guess, just hanging over the magic field that if a woman does something like, m- you know, make something disappear, conjure something, it still has that associations in people's mind of the occult. So that's something that keeps coming up. And another thing that was keeping women out of magic back in the day were the all-male magician guilds. Right. I mean, it's we kind of see the same thing like when we were talking about um, our podcast on women in art, the the artist guilds, which were exclusively for um, for men. And uh, so you have the same thing even with magic. And even today in L.A., there's this place called, what is it, the Magic Castle? Yes. I believe, um, which a friend of mine has actually been to the Magic Castle, and Ooh. I'm incredibly jealous. But uh, when you walked into the Magic Castle, which is this kind of enclave for higher-end magicians, you don't see many women hanging around. It's guys in suits. Right. It was only in the last few decades that they allowed women into some of their magic clubs and guilds, and even today, female membership in those clubs hovers around 5%. Mm-hmm. Very low. And I think that this discouraging of women in magic starts when you're a kid. I remember my brother playing with a uh, magic kit mm-hmm. when he was a young boy, putting on his magic ticks, as he called them for us. He couldn't say his R's. Um, but, you know, the on the front of the kit was a boy. Yeah, I think that, you know, female magicians have mentioned that over and over again, that when you're looking in magazines, uh, all the magazines feature male magicians, all the toys feature male magicians, because, you know, I think just for one simple reason, because they're all wearing the tuxedo and we don't think of women wearing tuxedos. Well, and let's go to this Miller McCune article that you talked about earlier, which was the one that you sent me that really got this magic ball rolling. Magic and, ball. And, and aside from uh, the the witchcraft connection and these kind of gender roles that we're talking about, 
the author, Peter Nardi, points out that there might be some other aspects at work that are that has created this gender gap in magic. And I don't necessarily buy all of his points, but I do. You do? Okay, well then, Molly, please. Well, which one did you have trouble with? I bet you had trouble with the masculinity of a magic wand. Masculinity of a magic wand? Yeah, I mean, that's a little much for me. I mean, I'll be honest. let's be honest. It can be phallic looking. A magic wand. Yeah. They're always talking about uh, boys and their toys. And so he makes that point that the, the, the instruments of magic, wands, swords, saws, these are things that we associate with men and we associate with power. And here's, I bet, another one where you had some trouble buying the argument that magic is a display of power. Mm-hmm. And we're uncomfortable with watching women on a stage exercising power, particularly over men. Well, here's the thing. I could see that, you know, back in Reginald Scott's days, back in the 16th century. Today, however, I'm just, yeah, I don't know. You don't buy it? I don't really buy it. I think that we might have progressed beyond that point. What I do buy, though, is that most magic instruction is designed for men with jackets. And women's clothes don't have pockets a lot of times and can't reach into breast pockets. Although there was one funny anecdote from a magician in another article we came across and they were, you know, she was wearing a strapless dress mm-hmm. to perform her magic. And someone was like, where did those doves come from? And she was like, but you never noticed how flat chested I am. <laughs> Illusions. <laughs> Illusions. But speaking of that, too, since m- magic has been more popular among men, the tools that they need, because this is a highly kind of technical art. You know, Joe Bluth has to buy magic tombs. Yes, and things like that. And a lot of times these tools are built for for men, except for things where they need an assistant. Right. For assistance, like if you have a box that someone you're going to saw in half or someone's going to disappear from, they're going to be small. So they think that's why women have been pigeonholed into the role of assistant, mm-hmm. because they're the only ones who can, you know, crawl into a very small box uh, who are flexible to crawl into this to the small box. And uh, there's actually a documentary made called Women in Little Boxes that examines the role of the magician's assistant and why we so often associate women with that assistant role. And many magicians have said it's the assistant who does all the work. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who've got to, you know, go through a trap door, maneuver like some pulley with their toes. What they're actually doing was, of course, made very obscure by the article since we're not sworn to the magician code and we can't find out how the trick is actually done. We can't get into the magic castle. But they're saying that it's actually the assistant who is the real magician. So that's that's what's kind of interesting about this is despite the fact that it's very hard to name a female magician off the top of my head, the fact is they were probably pulling the strings behind many of the male magicians that we could name. But speaking of which, why don't we name a few famous women magicians? That's a great idea, Kristen. And one that I was particularly impressed with, uh, who was highlighted in a 2008 article of Bus Magazine, was Dorothy Dietrich, because she pulled off a trick that even Harry Houdini would not attempt. Yeah, this was an intense trick. She held a metal cup in her mouth and caught a 22 caliber bullet in it. Someone shot a gun at her face, and she caught the bullet in this cup. And it has killed 12 men since people have started uh, trying this trick. And so by doing this in 1980, 
she has earned her place, as Nicole Summer says, in the pantheon of magic history. Now, there's also Del O'Dell, who is the original queen of magic, and she was born in 1902 and grew up in Kansas. And she, this is awesome, she developed a strong woman act and actually won the title of Miss Physical Culture. And then she started to integrate magic into her strong woman act and also had a pretty pretty wry sense of humor as well. And people just loved Del O'Dell. And she was, yeah, she was a celebrity of the day. She had her own half-hour show. She was on books and stamp albums and dolls. So I think that really is one exception to the to the thing that we don't know the names of, of female magicians. If we had grown up in that age, maybe we would have. Well, yeah, because Bust Magazine points out that in the 50s and 60s, there was a surge of lady magicians on the scene, and they were becoming more accepted Along with, you know, them showing up more in the workplace and, you know, we have the slow rise of second wave feminism around this time and all this stuff. And also Vegas. And also Vegas. Yeah. Uh, they, Vegas and the nightclub scene out there needed something new and spectacular every night to keep audiences coming back for more. And lady magicians were a big crowd pleaser because mm-hmm. it was unconventional. And, you know, uh, a lot of the magicians who are profiled in this Bust Magazine article, which we'll put up on our blog Roundup when it publishes, uh, is that, they're, that they were originally drawn to magic because a boy or a man said they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. One magician, Celeste Evans, you know, they, she was playing with some boys one day and they tied her up because she was going to play the damsel in distress role. You know, they were going to come and rescue mm-hmm. her at the last minute before mm-hmm. the train ran her over. And uh, she got out of the ropes on her own. And someone saw her and said, who do you think you are, Houdini? And she's like, well, I don't really know who this Houdini fellow is, but I better go find out. And she realized that because she had the skill and because she found out who Houdini was, she was going to pursue this career in magic. And we should also add that that Celeste Evans is the one who pulled doves out of her small-chested frame. And these magicians talk about how when they're rising in the ranks that, you know, it was very much, you know, they did come across that boys club where men wouldn't tell them the secrets of the magic society and wouldn't help them with their stage performance and things like that. And it does circle back to this idea of men having power that we were talking about earlier and not willing to cede that to someone who might take their job or might uh, upstage them. So I think that that's something we do see that is a parallel to Wall Street, let's say, and that it's hard for these women to find mentors and someone who can bring them up because of uh, the power that men hold. And uh, speaking of male power and magic, Kristen, I think we need to talk about the first time that a man made a woman disappear on stage. Because if you want to get into power implicit in some sort of performance, I don't think we can get much better in that story. And this is coming from a paper by Karen Beekman called Vanishing Women, Magic, Film, and Feminism. And the setting, just to, just to give you, you know, an idea of when this is taking place, we are in Victorian era Britain around the 1850s. There is some economic trouble. There are a lot more Women who are choosing to not get married, who are remaining single around this time. A surplus of women. Yes. It was declared by the census. Yeah. And we, then that came up also in our spinster podcast. This mm-hmm. is when that whole negative notion of a spinster, if you will, um, comes up. So 
You've right. got all these women. Yeah, all these ladies. They they are starting to have fishy ideas like wanting to vote. Make their own money? Like, whoa. All right, so our, the British man is a little intimidated, not to mention at this time Britain is an imperial power. Yes. They've got colonies all over the country, and one man even jokingly says, you know, we've got Australia. We could just send all these women there. Mm-hmm. Get rid of all the extra women. I mean, they, yeah, they really did consider all these women. A Make them problem. vanish. So, do you see? Do you see where this is going? Yeah, Karen Beekman takes it there, guys. Uh, because another one of their uh, imperial uh, involvements was India, mm-hmm. and now she writes about how the Indian mutiny is linked strangely to this first magic trick. Because a lot of the magic tricks that did become popular in that time, they got from India and uh, other places that they were traveling to. And so there was this mutiny in which many women and children were killed, uh, British women and children. And so this was really an attack, another attack, she writes, on British manhood, that not only at home did they have these women threatening to take more power, that they had their colonial subjects killing their women and making this violence against the British body very um, apparent. It was very raw. It was a mm-hmm. big wound for them. And so she writes then that seeing the first uh, woman disappear on stage in 1886 by magician Charles Bertram sort of was a way to uh, wrap up all these inadequacies into a way uh, and then take back that power. Because what you're doing is you're putting a woman in a box, this superfluous woman who does no good to your society except to want things and make her disappear. But, you know, as a magic trick, you still bring her back, which is what separates you from the Indians who massacred all these women. And so the, she really writes, I mean, you can take it with a grain of salt. It's a very deep reading about how uh, these these British audiences really responded to the idea of making a superf- superfluous woman disappear, yet bringing her back in a way that didn't align yourself with the violence of the savages that you were dealing with abroad. Yes. Heavy stuff. A very deep reading indeed. So do we want to talk a little bit about this Vanishing Woman Act? Sure. Then. So according to Beekman, the 1880s was the decade of vanishing women. When this trick first came on the scene, it uh, became very popular very quickly. And it all started. It made like the newspapers every day for a month. Yeah. That's how cool it was that this magician had made a woman disappear. (sighs) Man. Um, slow news month. <laughs> uh, and this starts in 1886 with a French born Hungarian magician. Okay. Who comes up with this act called surprise, the vanishing lady. Now in writing about this vanishing lady act, when it first happened, August 6th, 1886, a day that will go down in the history books. I would love to be at the magic castle on that date, on the (laughs) anniversary of that date. I wonder if they celebrate it. But there was another magician who wrote years later about, um, seeing this trick and he describes it as what is considered by every known professor of the magic art to be the most perfect and most startling stage trick which has ever been produced. And it was, I don't know, now reading the description of it, you're kind of a little bit... Are you still mystified by it, Kristen? If, Uh, if, If this guy picked up a woman who he describes, the writer describes as 
not petite. Yeah. She which was, Beckman makes the point. She weighed a little over nine stone. <laughs> and Beckman makes the point that this was a really overt way of saying women take up too much space in our society. The fact that he noted that. Now, you can take that with I, a grain of salt, too. I think he was just saying, well, she was bigger, so there's more to disappear. Okay, so he gets this woman on stage. He puts a red silk covering over her. And Beckman claims this is a sign of the India connection because it had come from India. And then he does a little magic and she disappears. Yeah, she disappears. She's sitting in this chair under the shawl. Next thing you know, bingo, bango. She's in the audience. She's in the audience, totally freaking some audience <laughs> members out, too, because according to this illustration... Uh, whew. They are all mystified. Whoa. Yeah, they are mystified. So with this incredibly simple trick, this doesn't even involve, you know, like a, an Egyptian tomb like Joe Bluth might use. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a, a chair and a shawl and a woman disappearing. Something that simple in 1886 uh, really just blew people's minds. It blew people's minds and it blew Karen Beckman's minds and mine when she presented her research on how everything was connected like magic. Like magic. And um, I think it really set the tone for modern magic. It did. did I think say that, the Vanishing Woman Act? Well, I think that you have um, a picture in your mind now of the woman as the lovely assistant who will crawl into a box or be the one that disappears. Right. And, you know, one site made the point would we be comfortable watching a woman make a man disappear? Yes. Or would that seem, you know, uh, too, too politically loaded? I think that if, uh, if we tried to reverse the trick today, it'd be impossible to ignore the gender implications. Whereas I think the reason I respond to the argument that Beckman makes in this paper is that, you know, why didn't we, you know, there was a reason to pay attention to the gender implications of what they were doing then as right. well. Um, so I think it'd be interesting to see uh, what, what it would look like in reverse. I know there are some magicians out there that can be kind of cheeky and get the mail, volunteer from the audience and, and do the reverse. But, you know, the, the argument keeps coming back is, would you be comfortable watching a woman do that? Or do we respond more to a man in that charismatic role? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's not evil because he makes her reappear. Well, and I'll just throw out this one little theory of mine, Molly. I'm ready for the end. Perhaps women are especially suited to do the um, magician's assistant role, if you will, because they are in charge of distracting the eye mm-hmm. a lot of times while the magician is preparing his illusion. Like you said, the magician's assistant is really the one doing all of the grunt work to pull off a successful trick. And I would say that a, a, a dazzling lady perhaps is more is more eye catching than a dude in a suit. You know who would you pay attention to? John Hamm, a wo- in a suit. Ooh, okay. You See? just you just change things. See exactly. Bit. This is gonna be my new career, everyone. I'm gonna be the magical Molly. I'm gonna go around and do feminist loaded magic tricks. But my sleight of hand. Uh, distracting assistant will be John Hamm. Maybe you could make, uh, you know, Josh and Chuck from Stuff You Should Know disappear. Or turn them into rabbits. Oh! Can't you imagine if you had little cute rabbits, Josh and Chuck rabbits? That would be kind of cute. Their little faces as rabbits. I'm picturing it now. All right, before we, you know, start just planning our um, our magic show extravaganza. We're going to turn all the House of Works podcasters into something. Into something? Mm. I don't know, man. I'm going to turn Jonathan and Chris into computers. Y'all, this magic stuff is really taking over Molly's brain. I'm getting a little concerned. I'm just, 
Yeah. Is that why you wore a top hat to work today, Molly? (laughs) Today and every day until the end of time. So Um, we want to know, we want to know what you think about this whole magic conundrum. Is it just, are there any gender politics associated with magic or is it just, or have I gone crazy? Has Molly gone a little crazy? Are illusions just meant for, to entertain? Or is there something to the fact that, hey, you know, why are there only lady assistants? All entertainment has cultural significance. This is true. This is true. So let us know your thoughts. Send us a magical email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And really, isn't email pretty magical because it just goes through like, just goes from one computer to another? Yeah, don't even see it. Magic is everywhere, people. So let's read some, some emails. I've got one from Tia, who's writing about the Gorilla Girls podcast, and she writes of one of our favorite subjects, Canada. She says, I want to shift attention up north. As a Canadian, I felt I should plug two iconic folk artists who are revered nationally, Emily Carr and Maude Lewis. Emily Carr is probably the most prolific and well-known of the two. Maude Lewis is a Nova Scotian hero who has an entire display devoted to her at the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, complete with her original house. While it's true that outside of Canada, these names probably do not mean much, within the country they have always been respected for their amazing works and never titled as female or woman artists, but simply artists. I find, in fact, that when you ask the average Canadian to name a Canadian artist, these two are usually names mentioned well before a majority of male artists. Just another reason that we love Canada. Canada rocks. All right, I've got one here from Lindsay, and this is in response to our episode on how breakups work in your brain. And she says, I'm so excited to hear that there are scientific studies supporting two terms my friends and I have coined called distractionitis and forget the bad itis. Forget the bad itis is the period during and after a breakup when you completely forget all of the horrible parts of the relationship that made the experience not worth it. You forget the hard feelings, the fights, the nitpicking, etc., etc., and all you do is think about how happy you were in those happier times and how you will never be that happy again. When you're experiencing a strong bout of forget the bad itis, your friends may end up pushing you into an even stronger bout of distractionitis. Distractionitis is when you're so focused on distracting yourself from the hardships of the breakup that you end up doing rather uncharacteristic and sometimes self-destructive things. Such as drinking too much, one-night stands, rebounding, overeating, etc., etc. There are, of course, positive ways to exhibit distractionitis that can help you heal your forget-the-bad-itis. However, if you go down the negative route, it generally only makes you feel worse, and the -the forget-the-bad-itis will get much stronger. So, thank you for sending on along those very important terms, Lindsay, that I think, yeah, everybody does experience a little bit of both of those with, uh, with breakups. So if you have any stories you'd like to share with us, feel free to email me and Molly at momstuff at how magical stuff, Molly, magical Molly. I'm so sorry at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. If you would like to share your thoughts, get other people's feedback, head over to our Facebook page and write something on the wall there. Or you can follow us on Twitter at momstuff podcast. And then finally, you can check out our blog where you can find all of these sources that Molly and I have been referencing throughout these podcasts. You can find it at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?